Hello everybody, this is the fourth sermon in our series looking at the book of Revelation. This week we're looking at Revelation 6 verses 1 through to verse 1 of chapter 8. And the hope unveiled this week is that the faithful are sealed. Last year I sang at the Royal National Mod in Glasgow. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Consequently, I wanted to keep a memento of the event. I still have my wristband. It's not much to look at, a rather crumpled and scruffy ring of paper. But for those three days in Glasgow, it was important. This wristband was what granted me privileged access backstage at the National Theatre. This wristband said I had nothing more to pay when I went to listen to other choirs. This wristband said that I was a legitimate member of a Gallic choir myself, not some interloping English tourist which my accent made me sound like. For those of you who've ever been to a music festival, a special exhibit at a museum or a country show, you will know how these wristbands work. You wrap a strip of paper around your wrist, pull off an adhesive tab, and then the two ends seal together. Once they are joined, you cannot pull them apart. Try as you might. Once the wristband is on, the only way to remove it is to cut it off with scissors. The seal is strong because the wristband is essential. If it falls off, you miss out. Something flimsy that would get torn in the hustle and bustle would be no good at all. The seal gives you such confidence that at the time you forget you're even wearing it. I would like us to keep this image of a sealed wristband in our minds as we think about the next section of Revelation. For we are about to read of another seal. Only this time it's going to grant us privileged access to the kingdom of God. It's going to declare that our sins are paid for. And it's going to say that we are a legitimate member of God's people. As we can already tell, there could never be a seal more important than this one. Over the last few weeks, we have discovered that the letter of Revelation was written into the context of persecution. As the Roman emperors demanded worship by the people, Christians were faced with a difficult choice. They either stayed loyal to Christ or they compromised their faith. Remaining loyal to Jesus could lead to imprisonment, torture and death. And even before the authorities got hold of them, many believers experienced being disowned by their families and betrayed by their friends. This then was an immensely difficult time that raised many questions in the believers' minds. Where was God? What was he up to? Why were his people being left to suffer in this way? Was he not powerful enough to stop the persecution? How was this all going to end? Over the previous weeks, we have noticed that these questions are very similar to those that we are asking now during this crisis caused by the coronavirus. Yet incredibly, we've discovered in Revelation that God understands. 
He has seen his people's suffering and he has heard their cries and he has been moved to offer reassurance and hope. He has granted a vision to John that contains some of the answers to our difficult questions. Last week in Revelation 4 and 5, we were given a privileged look behind closed doors. While the world rages, God sits as sovereign in heaven. It was a spectacle of holiness and power that demanded praise and worship. The promise implicit in those chapters was that one day this heavenly scene will become a reality on earth. Believers just have to hold on and wait. The great encouragement of that part of the vision was that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, sat with his Father on the heavenly throne. He had conquered evil through the cross and resurrection and had been enthroned by his ascension into glory. Chapter 5 finished with God the Father placing into Jesus' hands the scroll of his purposes. It was a symbol that showed us that Jesus has the divine authority to guide all of history to its conclusion. Jesus is in charge now. Nothing can wrestle the power from his hands. And it's this truth that suffering Christians find their greatest hope. This week in chapters 6 and 7, we see Jesus open the scroll. Up to this point, the scroll had remained sealed, the future a mystery. But now it is to be revealed. This is what the suffering believers of all ages want to hear. We want to know that everything will work out all right in the end. In this vision, the scroll had seven seals. Seven being the complete number in Jewish thought, taken from the seven days of creation. Jesus will open one seal at a time, giving us an overview of world history as a whole. We're going to see what is happening in the present as well as what will happen in the future. It will not all be easy reading, for the journey of life is beset by difficulty, but the end is glorious. Let's take a look at these chapters in detail. In verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6, the first four seals of the scroll get opened by the Lamb in quick succession. As each seal is opened, a horse is released to range wildly on the earth. This image is taken from the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. The first horse released is white and symbolises conquest. Roman emperors in their white togas, sitting on white stallions, marauded throughout the world, building their empire and bringing misery to many. The second horse is fiery red and symbolises war and violence. How the original readers of this letter knew all about that. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the people butchered by the Romans in AD 70. The third horse is black and symbolises famine. In the first century there was a terrible famine in Asia Minor as many harvests failed. That was why the Apostle Paul spent much of his time trying to raise funds for the poor. The fourth horse is pale and symbolises disease, disaster and death. 
Again, the early church recognised this too. In the first century, two of the towns that Revelation was written to, Sardis and Philadelphia, were destroyed by an earthquake. That devastation left disease and illness running rife. Across the whole region, life expectancy was appallingly low. What we have then as the first four seals are opened is an insight into a tragically average day in human history. They are describing the world as the first century Christians knew it, and as we know it today. This was never how God wanted the world to be. Death and destruction were a consequence of humanity's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden, and they've been with us ever since. But even here, there is hope. The fact that in this vision the Lamb opens these seals shows us that these tragic events do not happen apart from God. Nothing can happen in his creation without his permission. Of course, that is a difficult truth to take in. It it raises some troubling questions for us. But if we take the time to stop and think, it is the only path we have to hope. If the sovereign God permits this to happen, he maintains the power to stop it. If the world is out of his control, we are doomed to constant misfortune. The New Testament testifies that God is allowing the world to go on in its present state, for that is the only way for him to bring it to its best conclusion. In Romans 8, Paul wrote that God subjected the world to frustration, but he did that in hope of it being gloriously repaired and fulfilled. So these four seals are difficult to read. They sadden us as we recognise their reality. But we must always remember that God remains sovereign over world events. That was true of a first century famine And it's true of this virus today. After the first four seals, the fifth seal is opened. This one reminds us, in case we needed it, that God's people do not escape the suffering of the world. In fact, at times, they will find more of it thrust against them precisely because they have chosen to side with the Lord. As the fifth seal is opened, we read of believers dying for their faith. Remember that by the time John wrote Revelation, Nero had already killed many Christians in Rome. This seal then was again about the believer's own experience in the first century. In the vision, these slain martyrs find themselves under the altar of God. This, of course, is symbolic. The altar was the place of offering in the temple. This picture encouraged the readers that the sacrifice of the martyrs was pleasing to God. God would rather they stay true to him into death than they compromise their faith to avoid it. In verse 11, each of the martyrs is granted a long white robe, a symbol of forgiveness for their sins. Through their death, they have come to share in the victory of the slain lamb. They have carried their own crosses well. But this picture is not naively triumphalistic. 
These martyrs still cry out to God, asking him to bring an end to suffering on earth and to vindicate their deaths. The language of verse 10 is reminiscent of the honesty of the lament in the Psalms. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The Lord does promise to do these two things, but not yet. They're going to have to wait. Sadly, many more Christians are set to die for their faith throughout history. A statement that the present-day persecuted church tells us is an absolute reality. Why does God allow for these martyrdoms? Again, it's a difficult question to answer, but we know two things for certain. As each martyr dies, it is a witness to the world, calling it to repent. In the early centuries, as the population saw men and women being prepared to die for their faith, they started to ask questions. Soon churches started to grow. It led to Tertullian's famous quote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Secondly, we know that God's delay in ending this suffering is not idleness, it is an act of grace. He is waiting for the very last person to believe. That is good news, particularly when we see the ferocity of what is about to come for those who reject Christ. So the first five seals describe the world as we know it right now, but everything will change with the sixth. The opening of the sixth seal is the answer to the martyr's longings, but it comes in a dramatic way. This is nothing short of the end of the world as we know it. In verse 12 we enter the apocalyptic. As we read of earthquakes, the sun turning black and stars falling from the sky, we need to understand the metaphor. When something significant happens today, we talk of earth-shattering news or ground-breaking developments. None of us, when we hear those terms, think that the earth has literally crumbled or been rent apart with a great fissure opening up. We know that these statements are signals to the importance and impact of a great event. If that is true of a modern-day news story, How much more is that true of what is being described here? The sixth seal describes the day of the Lord, as foreseen in the Old Testament. This is the day of God's judgment that lies in wait someday in the future. On this day, all evil will be purged from God's creation. This will be a fearsome day, for God's wrath will come to bear on sin. He will act justly against all that has defaced his good world. This day will affect everyone. Notice who try to hide from God in a cave as the universe dissolves around them. It is rich and poor, slave and free. In other words, people from every background of life. Notice also that money, wealth, power and status will count for nothing on this day. 
literally no one will escape it. With this fearsome prospect in store for us all, no wonder the cry goes out in verse 17, Who can stand? Who can stand the wrath of the sovereign God? That is a very important question. The most important that we as humans will ever know the answer to. This question is so vital, John rams the brakes on. He stops all the action in the vision to answer it. There is an intermission before the seventh and last seal is opened. In chapter 7 of Revelation, we find the great hope that all Christians from the first century to this truly need to take hold of. And this is where my opening illustration of the wristband comes in. Before the great day of judgment takes place, the faithful are marked with a seal. In the first century, they would have been picturing a signet ring pushed into a lump of wax on a document. The seal said who the document belonged to and assured the recipient that its content was legitimate. We can picture a wristband sealed around our wrist that grants us access to a privileged area. Again, this is metaphorical language being used here, but we get the point. The faithful believers who endure persecution and resist the temptation to deny the faith are marked in God's eyes as belonging to the Lamb. From other parts of the New Testament, we know that it is the Holy Spirit alive in our hearts that provides this seal. At this point in his vision, John hears that 144,000 from the tribes of Israel are sealed in this way. This is a very symbolic number. Twelve is seen as being ideal. A thousand is seen as a very large number. So 12,000 is the complete amount. Each of the 12 tribes of Israel has 12,000 sealed from it telling John that this is the complete number of all the Jews who lived and believed before Christ. The way that John displays this in the text is like the military census we find in the book of Numbers, particularly in chapter 1. So John initially thinks that these are the men and women of God who can be deployed in an upcoming war. But no. That is not to be the case. Do you remember back in chapter 5, when John was panicking that there was no one able to open the scroll of history? Suddenly he heard the good news about a lion. But what he heard and what he saw were not the same. As he turned around expecting to see the great beast, what he actually saw was a lamb. It was a clever device used in apocalyptic writing to challenge the reader's assumptions. Here in chapter 7, the exact same thing happens. John hears about 144,000 people amassed as an army ready to do battle. But what he sees is completely different. In verse 9, he sees a great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, people and language on earth. 
This is an infinite number of people, far greater than 144,000. And who are they? They are those who have washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they are believers in Christ, Christians. John heard of an army of Jews. What he sees is a multitude of believers made up of Jews and Gentiles. This is a picture of all those faithful Jews who lived and worshipped God before Christ and all those who have believed in Jesus since he walked on earth. This is the total number of God's people. But think about this. When John was writing at the end of the first century, there was not more than 10,000 Christians or so, far fewer than a number of Jews. So this scene forms a promise to the martyrs of the first century. This is why their sacrifice will be worth it. This is why all believers should hold on to the faith, come what may. This is why God is currently delaying the end to the world's sufferings. It is because this multitude is being amassed. Notice this also. John heard about an army lined up for war. What he saw was a multitude standing before the slain lamb. The lamb did the fighting. The lamb was the one that conquered. Jesus won the victory through his cross and resurrection. The multitude did not resort to violence through their persecution. They just held on to the lamb. Because Jesus conquered death, they could turn the other cheek, love their enemies and bless their persecutors as Jesus asked them to do in the Sermon on the Mount. This is why in verse 10, the great multitude break into song and declare that salvation belongs to God and the Lamb and to them alone. The whole of heaven echoes that sentiment. I want to make sure we really get what is going on here. At the end of time, there will be a great judgment day. Those who have suffered for the faith, those who have gone through persecution, will be vindicated. Whereas those who committed the oppression, violence and injustice will be dealt with. On that day, all sin and evil will be removed from God's world, and there is not one of us who will escape this purge. But those who have had faith in Christ will be able to stand through it. Those sealed by the Spirit will pass through it. Like my wristband, that seal grants us admittance to the eternal kingdom of God. That seal declares that our sins have been paid for in full. That seal announces that truly we are one of God's beloved people. Those who have the seal of faith in Christ gain everything. Those that don't perish. This is why the first century believers had to stick to their faith. And this is why we must do the same today. With that explained, John Narrows returns to the opening of the seals on the scroll of history. He has finally reached the last one, the seventh, the one that will complete everything. After Judgment Day will come... Well, actually, we're not told yet. 
verse 1 of chapter 8 leaves us on a cliffhanger. We're left in suspense. We will not see the joined up life of heaven and earth until the end of the letter. John wants his readers to read on. But we know already that what awaits for those sealed in the faith is truly glorious. The final verses of chapter 7 gave us a few hints. God's people will be with God face to face under his protection. God's people will never hunger or thirst, grow tired or ill no more. God's people will be led to springs of living water. The Spirit will grant them eternal life. God's people will never know tears again. So what are we to take away from these breathtaking chapters? Well, the first thing is an honest sense of reality. There will be suffering and pain in this world. Creation itself is groaning. This is the consequence of human free will and sin. But God has permitted this state to continue because it's the only way he could save the world in full. Every disaster we experience then, including this virus today, is a call for us to come back to God and put our trust in him. Ultimately, God is holding out for the last person to respond to him. In the end, there will only be two sets of people, the faithful and the unfaithful. And it will only be the faithful who receive forgiveness and are granted eternity. As the first century Christians read this, they knew without doubt they must hold on to Christ. They must not compromise their faith, even in the face of persecution. As we read it during this virus, we need to hear God's call. We too are mortal. We need to believe in Jesus. For only then is eternity opened up for us and life today made any sense of. But let us all take this away. The hope unveiled in Revelation 6 and 7 is that the faithful are sealed in Christ.